I was just telling uh, Matei, when I die and you have a funeral for me, which will happen at some point, some, somebody here is going to be at my funeral, I'm sure. You know, it's going to happen. There's no avoiding it. When I die and have a funeral, you better sing And Can It Be. I'm, I'm holding all of you accountable for this. If you don't sing And It Can It Be at my funeral, you have done me a disservice, okay? <laughs> and Can It Be, what a wonderful song. Every line just filled with truth. Like, if you sing that and you're just like, ugh, you've got something wrong spiritually going on. It's, it's, this is so good. Such a great, great reminder of what is true and uh, what a wonderful preparation for us as we approach God's Word this morning. Today is two years that Trinity Church has been gathering. Yeah. All of the praise and applause and the credit goes to the Lord, does it? Yeah. So it's not because of anything we've done. In fact, we've pretty much done everything possible to, to not guarantee that we're going to meet in two years. We've, we've uh, done a lot of things, right? Maybe the wrong way, or maybe we've messed up along the way, but God has preserved us. God has kept us. We have met for two years, gathered together as God's church for two years. And that is incredible when you think about it. And we're very thankful for that. I, I thought uh, today about this message, you know, we're going to take a, a break, continue our break from Genesis next week. We're going to dive back into Genesis, Genesis 12, and continue with the life of Abraham or Abram, as it is in Genesis 12. Um, but today I thought we would take some time, and I, I really thought a lot about what text do we go to this morning to think about our church, to think about our gathering uh, here at Trinity Church. And uh, this morning I've chosen Colossians 1, verse 24 through 29. Colossians 1, 24 through 29. I'm going to read that in a moment, but before I read, I would like to lead us once again in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth that we have just recited, that we have just sang. And can it be? And can it be that you, God, would come and that you would put on flesh and that the Son of God would die for us, his people. What, a, what a, an amazing reality in all that has been given to us, undeservedly so. We've done nothing to deserve what we've been given. You have come to us in that darkness, the dungeon that we sat in the dungeon of our sin. And even, even now, Lord, there are some here, different ages and stages of life, who are still yet in that dungeon. They are in sin. They are in darkness, without hope, lost. And yet you came and you set that dungeon aflame with light. We rose, went forth, and followed you. You get all the credit and all the glory for that work of salvation. I pray that you would do that work in the hearts of those here who do not know you, do not know your son, 
are not aware of the, the truth of Christ. I pray that you would, by your mercy and grace, quicken them, enliven them, even today, by the speaking of your word, by the truth of your word. We thank you for these last two years. We thank you for how you have kept us, how you have sustained us, how you have preserved us. You've given wisdom. You have given grace and mercy as we have come to you and run to you in our weakness. You have never failed us. And I pray that we would continue to look to you, that we would continue to trust you, be stable and steadfast all the way to the end. And we know, we know that this church, Lord, this gathering of people, um, this, this gathering is all about you. And I pray that you would preserve us as long as we continue to make much of you and make much of, of the Son, Jesus. I pray that you would preserve us and that if any day comes where we do not hold you in the name of your Son and the truth of your Spirit, where we do not hold the truth of you high, that you would bring us to an end that we would not continue limping along speaking really what is false about you. And I pray for the churches in our area. There are many buildings where people are meeting this morning that call themselves a church, but they are not a church. They do not hold your name high. They do not preach the truth of Christ. I pray that you would bring them to an end. I pray that you would fill those buildings with churches that would speak the truth about who you are and that you would start new churches, Lord, by your work here in our area, that we would see the gospel, the truth of Christ shed here in Spokane, Spokane Valley, brightly. I pray that you would do this work for your glory for your name's sake, we pray now for the speaking of your word, that you would use this word to encourage us, to convict us, to admonish us, to point us again in the right direction. We pray all of this for your sake, in your name, amen. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through 29, if you would stand with me, stand with me in honor of God's word. As I read, you can follow along on the screen. I would encourage you, if you are accustomed to coming to church, I'm not sure if anyone fits in this category, if you're accustomed to coming to church without your Bible, that you would stop that, that you would come to church with your Bible, the, the, the actual copy of God's Word. Uh, because we don't, always, we don't always want to just put it up on the screen, right? We want it to be in your hands. We want you to be able to take it home and read it and be faithful to it. Colossians 1, verse 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. 
the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 377 billion. 377 billion. Can you compute with a number like that? 377 billion. That's the number. I did my research this last week. That's the number. In fact, it's over this number by now. Over 377 billion hamburgers served by McDonald's across the globe throughout its history. You remember the days when they used to put the the number of the hamburgers served, you know, up on on the arches? Well, if you read through the company's history, their mission and vision for McDonald's, and some of you know that story pretty well, if you read through all of their material about their company, you'll find several repeated ideas throughout all of their history and through all of their mission and vision statements. You'll, you'll read words like fast, efficient, affordable, accessible, familiar, enjoyable. McDonald's knows what it exists to do. They want to provide hamburgers quickly, efficiently, affordably. We can debate whether that's still happening or not. And in a way that's accessible to as many people as possible, and in a way that is familiar. Listen, if, you, if you're anywhere, right, you see the golden arches, you know. I know what a double quarter pound of a cheese is, is about, right? I don't have to wonder what I'm going to get. They have succeeded, I would say. Over 377 billion hamburgers served. They know what they want to do, and they've done it. In fact, they've done it so well that no other, no other hamburger place even comes close. Wendy's. Wendy's is pretty popular. I like a Wendy's hamburger, right? You know how many hamburgers Wendy's is projected to have sold in their history? About 2 billion. 377 billion to 2 billion. McDonald's. Again, more stats. They sell 75 hamburgers a second. Burger King. We just put up a new Burger King on Sprague. We drove by that and we're like, what are we doing in Spokane Valley? Why are we putting a Burger King up on Sprague? Awful. Burger King, by comparison, sells 275 hamburgers an hour. 75 hamburgers a second is 275 an hour. It's not even close. McDonald's crushes the competition. Why? Because they know what they're there to do and they do it. They do it very well. Now, at this point in the sermon, this is where we segue, right? You you have, okay, that's all fine and good. We We know you didn't come here to talk about McDonald's. Well, it would seem to me that if McDonald's knows why it exists, the church ought to know why it exists. But does the church know what it exists to do? 
I'd like to start by asking you that simple question. Do you know what the church exists to do? What is the, mis- what is the mission and vision? What is the mission and vision of the church? How would you answer that question if somebody came up to you and said, what is the purpose of the church? You know what's interesting to me? I teach, I've told all of you this before, I teach at Moody Aviation. Not the aviation part. I teach in the Bible part, okay? I don't know how to fly and I don't want to fly. I teach at Moody Aviation. All these people are there studying to go be a missionary overseas in mission aviation. You know what's interesting to me? When I ask them this question, hey, what, is the, what does the church exist to do? What is the purpose of the church? Do you know how many of them cannot answer that question? Not in any way that's clear. And so then I go, what are you doing? You're spending a whole lot of money to go overseas, to go carry this mission and vision out, and you're not even clear on why, why you're doing it. But, but you know what? I, I, as I talk to more and more people, I... I'm coming to the realization that a lot of people don't actually know what the mission and vision of the church is. They don't really know what we're doing. And so if we don't know what we're doing, we can't measure it, right? And this is why you see, and I'm going to have to be careful not to go off on this, this is why we see so many churches using the wrong measuring sticks to measure the success or the purpose, the health of their church. You can only measure the health of the church if you know what the measuring sticks are. Do you know a church isn't healthy just because people come to it? A church isn't healthy just because a lot of people show up on Sunday morning. A church isn't healthy just because people enjoy it. This is important. Just because people enjoy a church doesn't mean that church is healthy. We use the wrong measuring sticks to measure the health of a church because we don't really know, we're not really sure what the mission and purpose of a church is. When we ask that question, what is the mission and vision of a church... I, I tell you, I'll get, I get kind of nervous when people stand up to try to tell me what the mission and vision of the church is because, and here's why, there is only one person who has the right, who has the place to tell us what the mission and vision of the church is. There's only one person who has that right. Who is that person? You say, well, it, it, it's the pastor. No, it's not the pastor. The pastor doesn't get to choose what the mission and vision of the church is. Well, it's the elders. No, it's not the elders. It's not the congregation. Who gets to decide what the mission and vision of the church is? It is one person. And we actually see who this person is in the passage before that we looked at a couple weeks ago, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Christ is the head of the church, his body, right? He's the head of the, of the body, the church. Christ is the head. Christ is preeminent in all things. All things that are created and all things pertaining to the new creation. He is first. He is in first place in all things. That's the truth of the word of God. So the mission and vision of the church belongs to him. If we are going to set the mission and vision of the church, we must listen to our head. To the leader. 
Anything we would say needs to match what he has said. Anything we would say, and by the way, if you, if you to return to what I said a minute ago about healthy churches, people, people going to your church doesn't mean that it's healthy. When Jesus was here, when Jesus was on earth, was his focus on gathering big crowds? No, in fact, when you would have a big crowd, what would he do? He would usually say something that would send many of them away. Because he knew that they were following him for the wrong reasons. And he wanted to make clear the message of the kingdom. So let me ask you again, what is the vision and mission of the church? I'll ask it this way, what direction has Jesus given his people? What direction has Jesus given his people? What has Jesus said? I like to summarize the mission and vision, what I believe is the mission and vision of every church. And you, you could tweak this, and you could wordsmith this, and you could, you know, haggle over different parts of this. But let me give you, in one statement, what I believe the mission and vision for every church is, and what I believe Jesus has given every church to do. Okay? It's this. The mission and vision of every church is this, that the people of God, the people of God would proclaim the word of God. The people of God would proclaim the word of God in prayerful dependence upon the spirit of God. The people of God proclaiming the word of God in prayerful dependence upon the spirit of God over a long period of time. Or you could use the word for, for peace sake, right? Perseveringly. That they would persevere in the proclamation of God's word. So that the people of God would proclaim the word of God in prayerful dependence upon the spirit of God for a long time, perseveringly. Or you could say it like this, until the day we are presented before him. So I'll say it one more time, and I'll say it again at the end. What is the mission and vision of the church? And not just Trinity Church, but every church. That the people of God would proclaim the word of God in prayerful dependence upon the spirit of God until the day we are presented before him. That's it. Everything else we do, everything else we do should come underneath that. Everything else we do should be a natural implication of that. A natural outworking of that. Now, I could turn to many places in the New Testament to show you this. I could turn to a whole hostful, because again, I believe this is the mission and vision of the church, and so this is all over the New Testament. I could turn to many places in the New Testament to unpack this vision for Jesus, or of Jesus for the church, but I'd like to look at Colossians 1, 24-29. We see here in this passage that we just read, that the, Paul, the Apostle Paul knows who he is. The Apostle Paul knows who he is, and he knows how he fits into God's plan. That would be nice, wouldn't, wouldn't it? To know who you are and how you fit into God's plan. So we're talking about mission and vision. Who are we, and how do we fit into God's plan? Well, Paul knew that. He knew what God's will was. Now, he didn't know what every day of his life would Hold. He didn't know how every day of his life would unfold. And that's what a lot of people think is God's will. They want to know what every day is going to hold. 
Paul the apostle was like us. He didn't know what every day would hold, but he did know what God was doing. He didn't know what every day was going to hold, but he did know what God was doing in every day. And he knew exactly what his role was in that work. He understood God's purposes and plans for the world. He understood God's purposes and plans in everything. He knew the big picture. And I I fear that this is why many of us don't really know the purpose of our lives or what God is doing or, or as it relates to the church, what the church is for because we don't understand God's big picture. He understood not only what God was doing with him, but what God was doing with everything, with all of creation. And we just saw that, didn't we, in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. What is the point of all things? That Christ would be preeminent. That Christ would be in first place. That is it. Well, but, no, no, there's no but. There's no conjunction after that. That Christ is preeminent in all things. That's what God is doing. Notice how Paul unfolds this in Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Just very quickly, he knows that he has been given a stewardship by God. That's what he says in verse 25. He's been given a stewardship by God for the sake of the body of Christ, the church. Paul knows that he has been made a servant, a minister for the sake of the church. He is the servant of the church. And God has given him this role. And, and what is to, he's to do, he, said, he knows God has given him a stewardship for the sake of the church to do this. To make fully known the word of God to the saints of God. That's what he's there to do. This is verse 27. He says, to these, the saints of God, the church, God has chosen to make known a mystery. Now, when we see that word mystery, it doesn't imply that this is some kind of puzzle or riddle that we have to try to figure out, okay? But rather, it's it's speaking of something that has been hidden up to that point. It's been a mystery. It's not been known. It's been hidden. And that's what he says in verse 26. Hidden in the previous ages from previous generations. So here's what he's saying. The people in the Old Testament did not understand this, and they could not have understood this because it was hidden from them. God has chosen to make this previously hidden mystery known to his saints. And Paul's role is to make it fully known to these people, to the people of God, to the church. And he says this mystery is gloriously rich. This mystery is gloriously rich. It is glorious in its riches. Do you hear descriptions like that? When you, hear, when you read in the Bible descriptions like that, do you, do you kind of sit up and pay attention? Or does it just kind of like pass by you? Gloriously rich. What is he saying? The, the riches, the greatness of the riches of what I'm about to say to you, it is glorious. Pay attention. This mystery is glorious rich, gloriously rich, and it is for the Gentiles, is what he says. Look at what he says. This mystery is gloriously rich for the Gentiles, and this mystery is what? Here it is. This is the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Gentiles, the pagan nations, 
the pagan nations, the Gentiles, they have received the promise of the Jewish Messiah. That's what he's saying. The Gentiles have been given the promise of glory in the Jewish Messiah, the Christ. That could not have been fathomed in the Old Testament. Now, I said earlier that Paul knew who he was and what God's plans were for the world. God's big plan, get this, God's big plan for the world has always centered on the Jewish Messiah, on the person of the Jewish Messiah. God's big plan for the world has always been centered on the Jewish Messiah. We use the term Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. The Christ is the center of God's plan, and it always has been. So when it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory, what? What, 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 what has happened? The Gentiles have received the promise of the Jewish Messiah. Now this promise is what we've been unfolding as we've been looking through the book of Genesis. The promised seed of the woman who will bring man back to the rest of Eden. The promised king of Yahweh who will sit on the throne of David. He will rule his people and all nations will be brought into subjection to him. The Jewish Messiah is the hope of the Old Testament. It is the hope. This promise is the hope of the Jewish people. He is the one anticipated. The one that we just celebrated, right? The coming of the king. The king has come. And this has always been the hope of glory for the Jewish people. The Christ has come. He came as we just celebrated. He came to the Jewish people. And what did the Jewish people do? This is what John 1 tells us. He came unto his own and his own did not receive him. He came into his own. He preached to them repentance and a clear, a clear presentation of the nature of his kingdom. He gave it to them. He made clear who indeed would enter his kingdom. He made clear how you were to enter his kingdom, the true nature of that kingdom. That's what he clearly proclaimed to them. And what did the Jewish people do? They rejected him. They rejected him and killed him for his preaching. This is what Paul, or Peter, rather, in Acts 2, preaches. Your king came, and you killed him. And God has raised him up and declared him Lord and Christ. And that's why at the end of Acts chapter 2, all the Jewish people there in Jerusalem come to him and say, What should we do, brothers? We're in trouble. We just killed the king. And he says, Repent and be baptized in his name for the remission of sins. The Old Testament anticipated that Jesus, the, the Messiah, the Christ, would come. The Old Testament anticipated his death. Did you know that? Isaiah 53, we see that very clearly, but we see it in other places as well. The Old Testament anticipated the death of the Messiah. The apostles clarify for us the meaning of this death. This is huge. The, uh, the apostles explain to us what we would not rightly understand unless they explain it to us. The apostles clarify for us what his death means, the significance of his death. What was he doing in his death? 
he was taking the sins of his people. The Christ took the sins of his people and atoned for them by his death. He suffered the penalty of sin for his people, on behalf of his people. He paid their price. He suffered on their behalf. The apostles also tell us, and the Old Testament anticipates his resurrection. Do you know the resurrection is in the Old Testament? This is what the apostles say. Read the book of Acts. This is what Paul tells them. You should have known that he was going to die and raise. It's in the Old Testament. He uses the Old Testament to show them this. But the, the apostles tell us the significance of that resurrection. The Christ, the Jewish Messiah, was saved from sin and death, the sin and death of his people, by resurrection. And through that resurrection, he has achieved an eternal triumph over his enemies and over sin and death. Through his resurrection, he is victorious. And now... Because through his resurrection, he has defeated sin and death. Now, by his resurrection, get this, by his resurrection, he gives his people forgiveness for their sin. He gives them righteousness. He gives them a new life, free from the dominion of sin. That's what his death and resurrection has accomplished. By the work the death and resurrection of the Christ, by this work, then he has made peace on behalf of his people with God. This is what we just read, or if you, if you read the passage in between these two passages, verse 21 through 23, you'll see this word reconciliation. He has accomplished peace on behalf of his people with God, and this is the word of the Christ. This is the word of God. God has spoken in his son. This is what the Old Testament anticipated. And this is what the New Testament unfolds. This is the word of the Christ, the word of God. But what the Old Testament didn't anticipate was that this promise of the Christ, the benefits of the Christ, that this promise, this hope of glory, that this would be given to the Gentiles. And that's what Paul is telling these people, Colossae. He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's why Paul says that he rejoices in suffering for their sake for the church's sake. He says, I've been made a steward. I've been made a minister of the church. And so I rejoice. I rejoice in my sufferings on your behalf. He understands, Paul understands that in his own flesh and in his own body, in his own physical suffering, he is filling up or bringing to conclusion the afflictions of Christ, the sufferings of Christ. So what is he saying in this? He's very simply saying, he knows what the sufferings of Christ are for. What are the sufferings of Christ for? They are for the salvation of his people. The salvation of the church. And he knows what his role is in that. His role is to take this news to those people. To make the word of Christ fully known to all who are his people. 
And he knows that this involvement in the plans and purposes of Christ requires him to suffer in his very body just as Christ has suffered. To suffer in his very body to make the word of Christ fully known. And therefore he rejoices in his sufferings because the mission of Christ is being carried out. The mission and vision of Christ is being carried out to his people. It requires his suffering his bodily, physical affliction. And that brings us then to verse 28. Verse 28 and 29. Verse 28 and 29 gives us Paul's clear vision then for the church, his mission statement for the church. He knows what he is to do. He knows how he is to do it. And he knows why. He knows the what. He knows the how and he knows the why. He knows the content, he knows the means, and he knows the goal of this mission. The what is very clear. Look at it, verse 28. Him we proclaim. Now, I just spent all that time to fill in that pronoun there. Who who is the him? The Christ. Him, the Christ, the word of Christ, the word of God, which is the word of the Christ. This is what we proclaim. This is our content. The word of the Christ. Him we proclaim. That is the message. Often we give this message the shorthand title of the gospel. It is the message of the Christ. And this message is all-encompassing for all of life. Again, I refer you back to verse 15 through 20. The Christ is preeminent in all things, visible and invisible, old creation and new. There is no other message. There's no other message but the message of the Christ. Notice that this message is for the sake of his people, the church. Very important. We say this a lot. The message of the gospel is a message that all men, everyone need to hear. But it is especially a message for God's people. See, we think of the gospel as a message for the lost. Yes, we preach it to the lost. Yes, we preach the gospel all over the world. But the message of the gospel is especially the word for God's people. The saints of God, not made up of a certain nation, but people from every nation. Or you disagree with Colossians. There's one people of God, not two. Ephesians 2 makes that very clear. He made one new man, not two. Now, his people at this very hour... His people exist all over the globe from every people, every tribe, every nation, people group, right? His people exist all over the globe and some of them, many of them, today sit in darkness. Many of them sit in their lost state. But when they hear the message of the Christ, when they hear the message of the Christ, those who are his people respond with repentance and faith. 
God's people, those for whom Christ has died, will respond to the message of the Christ with repentance and faith. This is how we mark off who God's people are. They are the ones responding in repentance and faith. This message must be proclaimed. Romans 10 tells us this. This message must be proclaimed for them to hear and to respond. Missionaries, mission aviation people, that is why we send you. This is why you're going. You're going so that that message of the Christ can be proclaimed to all who will hear it and respond in repentance and faith. That is what you're doing. You should give everything to that because Christ is preeminent. But notice the proclamation of the gospel is also for those who have already responded to the initial call. So it's for those who have yet to respond, and it is for those who have already responded. And again, this is the mark of a true Christian. How do you know who a Christian is? A true Christian hears the word of the gospel, hears the word of the Christ, and responds in faith. The word of God, which is the word of the Christ, the totality of the message of Scripture, This message is preached and proclaimed and God's people are those who hear the word and respond with repentance and faith. When the word of God is preached, when the word of God is taught, when the word of God is counseled, the people of God respond in repentance and faith. We proclaim Christ. We proclaim the message, the only message that there is, the message of the Christ. That is our content That is our message. But he goes on to tell us the how of this proclamation. There's many places we could turn in the New Testament to show us this, but look at what he says. He says, we proclaim Christ, and we do this two ways. He says, we warn everyone, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom. It's really clear. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. The word of Christ, the word of the Christ, the gospel, needs to be explained or instructed with all wisdom. That's the idea of the word translated teaching. The gospel of the Christ is simple, but it is not easy to understand. It is not easy to understand in all of its implications. It is not easy to understand in all of its ramifications. It is not easy to understand in its vastness. The the truth of the Christ, the word of the Christ is all-encompassing for all of life, for all of the universe. There is nothing under the heavens. There is nothing in the heavens, visible or invisible, where this message is not central. Nothing. If you're having a hard time understanding that, the problem, again, is not with the message of the Christ. It's with your understanding. You're very limited, and I am very limited in that understanding. We need to grow and be enlarged in our understanding of the gospel. Not turn to another message. It touches everything in the universe. The reality of Christ changes everything. And God's people need to be taught this. They need to be taught with all wisdom. We sang about this in our songs. God's people need to be taught how to live in light of the truth of the Christ. God's people need to be taught how to think in light of the truth of the Christ. God's people need to be taught how to be motivated in light of the truth of the Christ. 
God's people need to be taught all of the implications and ramifications and all of its importance. They need to be taught this. And they need to be warned. We heard last week from Hebrews a a note of this warning, the urgency. The word for warning can be translated exhorted or admonished. The proclamation of the word doesn't just stop at instruction. It doesn't just stop at teaching. It's not just knowledge to be gained. This is is why I, I don't believe discipleship is a curriculum. Oh, I went through all of that curriculum. That doesn't mean you've been discipled, right? Discipleship is not a curriculum. It's not a a, a period of time that you go through and you graduate from. It must be applied. The word of God, the word of the Christ can't just be taught. It's not just knowledge to be gained. It's application. It must be applied. And it must be applied with vigilance, with urgency, and with great warning, There is peril if you do not heed the word of the Christ. It is dangerous not to listen. It's got to be the word of the Christ must be pressed into his people. And that does not happen easily. It must be urgently applied understanding that there are a whole host of false narratives which would seek to supplant the truth of the Christ daily, hourly in our lives. There there are many uncountable false narratives that you and I are prone to believe and prone to hold on to that destroy us. How many false narratives are we tempted to believe daily, hourly? How many false narratives about our life and about the world and about meaning and about purpose and about my job and about my marriage and about my children? How many false narratives are we prone to believe every single solitary day, every single moment of the day? We have so many false narratives that we are prone to believe and and reject the truth of the Christ. See, that's why we need to warn each other. Teach each other and warn each other not to fall prey to these false narratives. No one cares about me. That is a lie. No one wants me around. That is not true. It's not really worth it. It costs too much. That's not true. If God was smart, he would have made following him a lot easier. How many of you believe that? When we think about how difficult it is to follow Christ, <laughs> God, really, I mean, come on. God's not too smart. He makes it so difficult. That's a lie that has got into your brain and got into your thinking and got into your motivations. It's a lie. And we could go on and on and on and on, right? The gospel must be taught and it must be warned. And by implication, implication then, it must be heard. The necessity of hearing and responding to what you have heard. That's the heart of the book of Hebrews. You want to know what the heart heart of the book of Hebrews is? And we, we heard from Hebrews last week. Christ is worthy of everything. Hold fast your profession in him. And go on to maturity in Christ. Let me put it this way. You started the race. Finish it. You started in this journey, go on till the end. And how? By hearing the word of the Christ and responding by faith and repentance and clinging to him. 
forsaking all false narratives. Hold fast to your profession. Don't turn away from the greatness and the worthiness of Christ. He's everything. Tell each other to continue in the faith. Call your brothers and sisters to repentance. Keep going. Keep going. Did you know then, and you're probably putting this together, the gospel proclamation, the proclamation of the word of the Christ is a full-time job. The teaching and the warning, it is a full-time job. It's not something we just do on Sunday mornings or at discipling group. It is a full-time job, first for myself. I have to continue speaking the truth to myself and for others. Do you know that? It's a full-time job. Ephesians 4 tells us this. And I want you to hear this well. If you hear nothing else, hear this. This is your ministry here at Trinity Church. Your ministry is not on some service team. Your ministry is not serving as an usher or serving in the children's ministry. Your ministry is to speak the word of Christ by teaching and warning others to not forsake the Christ, to continue in faith and repentance all the way to the end. That's your ministry. And if anything else that we do keeps you from that ministry, then you need to get out of that thing that you're doing and and be faithful in the ministry. Ephesians 4 gives us this very clearly. So how can I be used in ministry? I have that question all the time. How can I be useful in ministry? Proclaim the reality of the Christ. Teach and warn. Admonish, encourage, be faithful. That's your ministry, instructing and warning everyone, starting with yourself. So what is the vision and mission of the church? To proclaim the truth of the Christ, to proclaim the truth of the gospel. How? By warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? What's the, what's the goal? So his, here's the, his third part. We know the what, proclaim Christ. How? By warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? This is what he says. That... Verse 28, that everyone may be presented mature in Christ. Paul knew the goal of ministry. Do you know what the goal of ministry is? The goal of ministry is not to get everybody saved. The goal of ministry is not to make a bunch of people converts. The goal of ministry isn't even to get as big of a crowd as we can. That's not the goal of ministry. See, that's, that's what we think. Most people, a lot of people are coming, so it must be doing well. It is not doing well if we're not pursuing maturity in Christ. And if we ever get to the point where we are so big that we can't know how each other is doing, we're too big. And I'm serious about that. Because maturity in Christ is the goal. Not just people in the seats. The goal of gospel proclamation is to present everyone mature in Christ. The gospel then isn't merely for entrance into the Christian life. It is what will bring us all the way home to Jesus. Now, if you weren't convinced already that the gospel is for believers as well as unbelievers, that the gospel is actually for believers, then I hope you're convinced now. The point of the preaching of the Christ is to bring his people all the way to him. Let me give you a very quick definition of maturity. Maturity definition. How do I know if I'm growing in maturity? Here it is. How do I know if I'm mature? How do I know if I'm growing in, 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 how do I know if I'm growing in 
maturity. Simple question. To what extent does the reality of the Christ own your life? To what extent does the reality of the Christ determine your decisions? To what extent does the reality of the Christ shape your affections and your motivations? The reasons why you get up in the morning. The reasons why you do what you do. To what extent does the reality of the Christ grip you, sustain you, keep you? This is the measuring of your maturity. This is how you can tell whether you're growing in maturity or how mature you are in the faith. See, those who grow in maturity actually become more acutely, they become acutely aware of their sin. Those who are mature become acutely aware of their sin and they become acutely aware of the sufficiency of Christ's work in the cross and the resurrection. It's not that I grow to a place where I never sin anymore. It's that I become aware of my sin even more, more deeply than I've ever been before and how the grace provided in the Christ is more than enough to cover my sin. Where grace, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Those who are mature or maturing are growing in their understanding of this. So much to say about maturity. And I, 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 I thought about just doing a whole message on maturity. But this book right here, Sinclair Ferguson, it's back there on that shelf, or at least I stole this one from that shelf. So you can go. I, I want to commend this to you, Maturity by Sinclair Ferguson. It's a wonderful pastoral look and definition of what Christian maturity is and how to go after it. I would commend it to you and encourage you to read it. Maybe grab a couple of people and read it with them. You don't have to ask my permission to do that. I just gave it to you, okay? People ask my permission. Can I get together and study the Bible with people? Why are you asking my permission for that? I don't, I don't understand. Give you a couple of thoughts about maturity here. And we could, we, I could do a lot. Very, very simply, these I think are helpful to us. Growing in maturity is not optional. It's not optional. It's a non-negotiable of the Christian life. The pursuit of maturity is, is a serious issue. Again, the whole book of Hebrews talks about those who are immature. And it's a book of warning, right? Hebrews, the warning of not growing in maturity. Why? Because it's the Christ. It's the truth of the Christ being pressed into us. We cannot overstate the danger of not growing in maturity. Immaturity is not funny. You know, like, like I, I, there's so many pictures I could use, right? I can, I, I've had eight children and I've carried each one of them around when they're like, you know, a year old, six months old. I carry them around and they spit up on my, on my uh, shoulder and, you know, walk around with them and they're so cute. If I was doing that with them when they're 13... If they were still in a diaper when they were 13. If they were still spitting up on me when they were 13. You would know something is seriously wrong. You understand? That's the picture of immaturity. 
It's gross. It's not right. It's not okay. Not growing in Christ is a serious issue. We must pursue maturity in Christ. It's not to be taken lightly. Maturity involves hearing and responding to the truth of what you hear. Maturity, growing in maturity, is first about listening. So it involves humility and teachability. It involves listening to those who are seeking to help you. That's why I like the sermon-based small groups that we do. Because you're forced to have to, to think about what you heard. You, can't, you don't just get a pass. You're forced to think about what you've heard and then try to apply it to your life. The Bible study model, where we all just come, we study the Bible and we come together and talk about what we studied, that is, has a danger, right, of filling yourself with knowledge but never calling you to respond or repent or change or grow. We just fill people with knowledge a lot of concern for people who are filled with knowledge and never changing. People are filled with knowledge and yet not being transformed. That, to refer to my illustration a second ago, that is gross. That is gross. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not super impressed with what you know. I took all those classes too and several other people have taken those classes. We can, we can take classes to get to know stuff. But I'll tell you what's dangerous. In my own heart, this is dangerous. When I, when I know things and I don't change and I don't transform, that is gross. It's not the way it's meant to be. Maturity is not arrived at quickly. Maturity is not arrived at quickly or easily. It's lifelong. It's never done. You don't graduate until the day you see Jesus, okay? So we have to be careful of the trappings and the, the false promises of quick fixes and gimmicks. How many books fill Christian bookshelves on promising to give you the answer, finally the answer to your anxiety or whatever other issue you may have? No, there, there's no quick fix. There's no gimmick. Let me ask you this, and, and this, this is really important. How well do you continue in the faith without getting antsy? You ever met somebody who's antsy? There's always got to be something new. There's always got to be something else they're achieving. There's always got to be, and they're like this all the time. They're just like this all the time. They're just, you know, these people come and say, hey, I got this idea. I, oh, oh, I got this idea. It's like, just stay the course. But that, that's not attractive. That's hard. It's not flashy. But that's what maturity, that's the path of maturity. How well do you continue without getting antsy? How up and down are you? See, that's a sign of immaturity. People come and they're super excited. Okay, I don't want to damper your excitement. Let's see where you're at 10 years from now. Because that's the goal. That, that's, that's the mission. Not just today, not just next week, not just next month, but 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. That's the goal. In fact, the goal is all the way until we see Jesus. And that, yeah, we can't be tossed about by every wind. That's what he, or Ephesians 4 says, it's like the children tossed about by every wind. The work of growing in maturity then ends at the presentation before God. There is going to be a presentation before God. Stay with me here. Right before this, verse, 20, verse uh, 21 through 23, 
You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order, he says, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you've heard. There will be a presentation before God. We see this truth very clearly the goal of reconciliation, the, reconcil- the work of the Christ, the goal of reconciliation is to present you before God. Reconciliation is the basis of your maturity and the growing in spiritual maturity is the outworking of that reconciliation. Let me put it in very simple terms. You have been made right with God in Christ. You have peace with God and the result of that peace with God is growing in holiness continuing in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That is someone who is growing in maturity, the result of our reconciliation. So maturity then is measured in patient endurance. Maturity is measured in consistency and stability Maturity is measured in trust and perseverance. That's how maturity is measured. Where do we get all the energy for this long-term goal, this all-encompassing work? Where do we get all the energy from? Well, he tells us in the very last verse, for this I toil, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that is powerfully at work within me. We see two truths evident here in this last verse, verse 29. The goal of maturity is hard work. The goal of maturity is hard work. Are you afraid of hard work? The goal of maturity is hard work. Paul toils, the word toil there, hard work. Suffering or struggling, agonizing for the sake of the maturity of the believers. He agonizes over their growth. But, so this, this maturity, this goal of maturity is hard work, but his work is energized by the energy and power of Christ. As we go with him where he is going, he gives energy, he gives power, he gives resource to accomplish his mission. When we are with him in ministry, he resources and energizes that. So at the end of the day, we stand back and say, that was not my work. It was all his work. It was hard work, to be sure. But he energized. He worked powerfully. He accomplished the goal. So it's not easy work, but it's the work that Christ is doing in the lives of his people. And as we cooperate with him, he energizes us in that work. So that's where that idea of prayerful dependence comes in. The people of God proclaiming the word of God, the word of the Christ. The people of God proclaiming the word of God in prayerful dependence on the spirit of God over a long period of time until the day we are presented before him. That's the mission and vision of the church. Four, four things I'm praying. 
I'm going to read them and I'm going to be done. Don't pack up. Just listen. Number one, that Christ would be preeminent in our homes. That the word of the Christ would be the reality that each of our households operates out of. That our homes would speak the word of the Christ. That the members of our church would be faithful to the call of proclamation of that word, both to the lost and to the saved. That we would work hard to that end to present everyone mature in Christ. Number three, that we would sense our utter need for his power. This is not a work we can do in our own strength. That this utter need would lead us to pray in dependence upon him. That we would pray less as a church for material comforts and securities and more for his transforming work to be accomplished in our lives and the lives of others. Number four, that we would be a steadfast and stable people, a hardy people. What a hardy person looks like. Not moved away from the truth of Christ. That we would be steadfast and stable. That we would be so convinced of his promises that we would endure with joy and with expectation. The expectation of his coming. That we would endure trials and difficulties of life that these would not overwhelm us or cripple us or cause us to despair, but that we would meet them with the knowledge of the Christ fixed in our minds. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Thank you for the clarity of this vision. I pray that you would take your word and remove, remove from this morning anything that I did or anything that was said that was distracting or unhelpful or hurtful, but that you would leave your word and the truth of it, that this church would embrace your mission and your vision for her, that we would be a place of your people who proclaim your word by dependence upon your spirit for a long period of time, not removing ourselves from the truth of your word, of the Christ, that we would recommit even today to that word, that it would be pressed in us, that it would become what holds us, what shapes us, what determines our decisions, what determines our affections and motivations, and then what guides our behavior. I pray that you would accomplish this for your glory and your name. Amen.